Good morning. Please stand with me just for a second. Aren't you thankful that we have a God that chose to invest in the person? Amen? Amen. Big crowd here today. We had a great crowd in the first service. Thanks for coming to this one here. This is the second one of four today. And I'm so thankful that you are here. But I want you to know, in spite of the crowd, do you know that God loves you, the individual? Amen? And he knows you. He knows you personally. He loves you personally. I want to show you a cool picture, okay? A few weeks ago, we sent a brand new church out. This is a picture of Renovate Church. Uh, Trey Teal is the pastor there. And I, I just want to show you just something neat that's happening. They, they've been meeting in homes over the last year, developing their core team. Uh, Jerry Maxwell and myself have been coaching Trey and Amy in planting a brand new church, but we have invested in them time. We've invested in them money as, as EVC has been sponsoring them as they are meeting. And they recently started this uh, new church, and now they're meeting an encore dance studio over here in Saginaw. And we've also invested people because we've sent some of the people who are a part of EVC out to go and be a part of that church and get that new church started. How many of you are excited it's football season? You love football season? I love it, okay? Some of you are like, eh. But here's the deal. There will be touchdowns scored all over the nation today, and people will be going berserk over a touchdown, and that's okay. But I want you to know that a brand new church getting started, that is a touchdown for Jesus right there, amen? And that is what we applaud. And I love being a part of a church that is alive. So let's, let's pray together. Let's just thank him for his kindness and goodness. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love the person. Lord, even in the crowd, as we will see today, Lord, you notice the one. You love the one. And we want to be a church that loves like you do. So, Father, would you teach us from your word? Would you encourage those that need encouragement today as they've experienced difficulty this week? Father, would you correct us where we need correction? Would you inspire us? Would you challenge us? Your word is living. Your word is active. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher in this very moment. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat. And as you're grabbing your seat there, get your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 4. And we're talking about, in this series called Invest in the Person, who are we trying to reach as a church? Who are we trying to invest in? What does that look like? And, 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 and so we're discussing this in this series, and, and I'm excited about what the Lord is doing. We're talking about our need for growth, our need for expansion. Uh, as you can see, this is a full service, and the, the first service was, was not as full as this one, but pretty, pretty close. Uh, the next one will be great as well, and we'll have a good one at 5 o'clock again today. So we're talking about what does that look like. So if you're interested in knowing more about how we're going to grow, how we're going to expand, what does that look like? What's the vision of your church? I want to really encourage you to come to one of our vision fellowships that Randy was talking about. Sign up for one of those. You don't have to be a member of the church. Just come and hear what we're about. What does that mean? Who are we going after? How are we going to do that? What does it look like for our facilities here is we're going to need to do some things to knock this wall out and to grow in, in our youth area, and, and we're going to talk in depth about all of that. Now, as we've been growing, we've gone to four services, and I love it. I love that we're doing this. It, it is, uh, it's a little, uh, it can be a little trying at times, and we're trying to get used to it, but I love it. But one of the things that I'm having to be sure to do is, uh, as, again, you're the second of four today, uh, and I want to have as much energy for, for the fourth one as I tried to in the first two, all right? And, and so I have to take care of myself. 
I have to be sure that I'm taking care of myself. I have to be sure that, that I'm exercising and uh, being sure that I have stamina to have the kind of energy that I need to do a good job in teaching God's word. And the other thing that I have to be sure is I'm taking care of my voice. And so what I have to do is I drink a lot of water. I hydrate. You hear that all the time. Hydrate, you know, it's good for you, whatever. Well, you would be surprised at the amount of water that I have stashed back there. People have walked by and they're like, really, you're going to drink all that today? I'm like, I really do because I sweat a lot up here, as some of you have seen. And, uh, and not only that, if, if, I, if I don't take care of my voice, then by the fourth service, I don't have a voice by the time that rolls around. So I've noticed when I drink a lot of water, it helps. And I have to take care of my voice too. Now, again, I love football and I get to be the chaplain for the Basel Pioneers and I'm on the sideline and I get pretty excited down there. Some of you last year were like, you're kind of crazy down on the sidelines, Pastor Bart. You don't look too pastorly down there. I mean, I'm headbutting guys with helmets on and all kinds of it. I mean, I, I get a little loud while I'm down there. Well, some of you have noticed that it's changed this year. Some of you are like, you're a little more subdued. What's up with you? And I, do you know, I was because I'm trying to take care of my voice because I was coming in last year before the first service would start, I was already hoarse. All right, I'm like, I can't do that anymore. So now, do you know how hard it is for me to be on the sidelines and go, way to go, guys. I love how you ripped their heads off on that one. Good job. I love how you're destroying them today. That's hard for me to do, Right. And so I've got to take care of myself, I've got to hydrate, I've got to drink plenty of water, and, uh, and, and, and so I have a, 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 a thirst that must be quenched every single day, but especially on days where I'm really active. Whenever I am uh, exercising, maybe I go for a trail run out at Eagle Mountain Park, I love to do that, or whenever I'm finished preaching and I'm so thirsty, never when I'm thirsty like that am I thinking at that moment, man, I wish I had a chili cheeseburger. That's not just going to do it for me, all right? Now, I will think that at other points throughout the day, just saying, but when you're thirsty, you want something that's going to satisfy your thirst. You, I'm looking for at that moment, I want some clean, clear, cold, refreshing water. Even talking about it for you, probably for many of you, makes you a little bit thirsty. There's a natural response that happens to that. It's okay, take a drink, all right? Just be sure it's water, all right? And, and you don't want any alternative. You want the real thing. You don't want a substitute. Back right after we'd started the church, we were meeting in a gymnasium and we were setting up and tearing down every single, every single week and it was, it was a challenge and, and we got to where we had grown to where we were doing two services in the gymnasium over there and uh, we had a stage that we had to bring in every week and I would, I would uh, take a, a, a bottle of water just like this right here and I'd put it down on the stage. I didn't have a backstage area but I would walk down and the first thing I would do is I would grab my water in between services because again, I had to hydrate. Well, we had a guy who was on our worship team. We'll say he had an addiction to Copenhagen, okay? And he liked, to, he liked to spit in a bottle that, you guessed it, looked just like the one that I like to drink out of. And on that day, he put his, and the lights were not working properly that day, he put his bottle in the same area. As, you know what happened, right? You know what happened? I walked down, I preached the word of God, I'm so excited, and people's lives are being changed, right? I walked down, my life was about to change, because I walked down, and I grabbed the bottle that I thought was mine, and I just want you to know that there is nothing worse when you are expecting clean water to quench your thirst, to instead substitute that with Copenhagen spit, and not your own. 
my wife would not kiss me for a week at least. And I, you got to know you are in a redneck church when your pastor drinks Copenhagen's fit in between services, all right? But, but we, don't want, we don't want an alternative. We want the real thing, right? We want the real thing. We want something that's going to actually satisfy our thirst. And I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in John chapter 4. And uh, you all get thirsty at one point or another. You all have thirst every single day, but not only do you have a physical thirst, you were created with a spiritual thirst. And there is a thirst that is within each and every one of us for spiritual things, a thirst that can only be satisfied, as we'll see today, by Jesus Christ. And, and you don't, we will try to fill our lives with substitutes. I've done that before. Some of you maybe are experiencing that now. We try to substitute Christ for something else, and we're unsatisfied. We may not have the same level of disgust that I had for what was substituted for me, but, but we're unsatisfied. And this passage of Scripture, in John chapter 4, Jesus is going to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And this Samaritan woman would be what we would, we would say she would have a stigma attached to her because of a few things that I want to explain to you. She was stigmatized by her community. She was stigmatized by her culture. Now, if you read in John chapter 3, to get some context for John chapter 4, by the way, you always need to do that. You need to read around the passage to understand the full context of it. But in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to meet up with a religious leader who was a Pharisee. He was a Jew, and his name was Nicodemus, and he was wanting to know how to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he comes to Jesus at night. He was the original Nick at night, okay? He comes to Jesus. He's asking questions about what it means. Jesus begins to tell him this, that even though you are religious, you still must be born again. You know that passage, okay? Many of you know that passage. Well, then we get into chapter 4, and it says this as we start to, to look at this. that Jesus. And by the way, I want to tell you that as we look at this passage, you should understand that Jesus goes immediately to meet with a person who would be in stark contrast to this religious Pharisee. He goes to meet with a Samaritan woman. And there is a reason that these two passages are, are attached together. I know they're separated by chapters, but that was not in the original manuscripts there. Jesus has a spiritual conversation with a woman who was stigmatized. She was a non-Jew. She was looked down upon by not only the Jews, but she was also looked down upon by people in her own Samaritan culture. So she's a, she's a non-Jew, she's a Samaritan, she's a Samaritan woman, and she was, she was considered the lowest of the low in her culture. Now the point of these two, these two stories being connected is Jesus is making certain that we know that both kinds of people still need a Savior. It doesn't matter how often you come to church, you still need a Savior. We still need to be born again. And Jesus is showing us this. Those that think they are righteous still are broken and need a Savior. And Nicodemus, although he may have thought he was righteous because of his religious activity, he still needed a Savior, and Jesus told him that. And now Jesus is going to be meeting with a person who's battling with a lot of shame, battling with a stigma in her life. She's looked down upon. She's thought of as the lowest of the classes amongst her people group there. And Jesus is saying that she needs a Savior too. 
And Jesus is no discriminator of persons, and I love that about him. John chapter 4, here's what it says, starting in verse 3. So he left Judea, he returned to Galilee. And I'll, I'll show you a map in a minute. What does that look like on the map? He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so it's been there for years. Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me something to drink. Would you give me something to drink? He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. There's a lot of discrimination going on. Jesus said to, or she said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the, what's the next word, church? That's what our salvation is. It's a gift, right? You don't earn it. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you, everybody say it, I would give you living water, a water that's different than what you're using to satisfy your soul. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Jesus is switching the conversation to something a little deeper beyond just physical water. There's something going on in the conversation now. He's masterful at this. It becomes this, this water that you'll never thirst again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring, one that's continuous, right? Within them, giving them eternal life, eternal life. Please, sir, this woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus switches the conversation. This is very interesting how he does this. Go and get your husband. Go and get your husband. And as we'll see, at this moment, this was something that she was not expecting, but Jesus, being all-knowing, he knew what was going on in her life. Jesus said, go get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. And the woman replied, Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. And then Jesus says, you certainly have spoken the truth about this so what is going on here? What is, what is he getting at? What's happening in this passage? Now, I want you to notice a few things. I want to bring up a map of Israel. First of all, as we look at and just start breaking this passage down, it said that he had to go through Samaria. Well, certainly, he, if you look, he was in Judea, which is in the southern part of Israel. You see that red part down there. I think it's red. And then, and then Jesus is down there, and he's meeting with Nicodemus, and then it says that he had, or in one version, it says he must need to go through Samaria. Well, he was heading up to Galilee, which is where his home area was. He was going to minister up there. And, and so what is right between those two areas? Smack dab in the middle is Samaria. And that is something that's very interesting when you understand the context of what's going on and the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other. There was religious bigotry. There was, they had racial bigotry that was going on. They discriminated against one another. The Jews looked down upon the Samaritans as a lower class. So the Jews many times would often, if they needed to go to the north, would go, they, would, they did not want to have any kind of 
any kind of contact with a Samaritan person because if they did, they were therefore religiously unclean. They couldn't go to the temple. And so they would avoid them. They wouldn't have any contact with them. And, and so th- what, what they would do is they'd go around. They would inconvenience themselves. They would go around either to the east or to the west. But many, they wouldn't go through Samaria. But Jesus, it says that he, he had to go to Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. And this is just such, such a powerful statement for us today. And, and this, this passage, when we think about his intentionality, he could have gone around like so many others would do this. But you need to know that Jesus never did anything. He never said anything. He never acted in a certain way arbitrarily. Everything Jesus did was always with a purpose. And every encounter Jesus had was always intentional. Jesus wanted to meet with this woman. She had never met him before, but remember, he's God. He's going to make that declaration here in a moment. We'll read this. But Jesus, even though he was constantly surrounded by the crowds, he always loves the one. He always is interested in the one. And, and you may feel lost in a crowd here today. You, you may have come in and wanted to be lost in a crowd, and that's okay, but here's the deal. Jesus notices you. He loves you. He loves you and he knows what's going on in your life and he wants to meet up with you today and have a conversation with you because he cares about you. All people matter to Jesus. We're gonna see even people who have a stigma attached to them, a stigma attached. And so Jesus is is at this place. He goes through Samaria. He comes to the town of Sychar there. You can probably see it on the map if you squint there. The Bible says that it's about noon. It's in the middle of the day, hot part of the day. Jesus is described at this point as being tired. He's thirsty. We are getting a glimpse of his humanity. He goes to the well, Jacob's well. He sits down at the well and, and he's not just there. He could have gotten himself water, but, but he wanted to have a conversation with this lady. And so he sits down. He knows that she'll probably be coming at about that time. He could have gone to any other well, but he goes to this well. She walks up probably not wanting to make any kind of eye contact, probably surprised anyone is even at the well. Probably even thought about turning around and going away. But he engages her in conversation. He says, would you give me a drink? Could you give me a drink of water? By the way, I could do a whole other message, and I will another time, on how to have a spiritual conversation with somebody. What does that look like? It doesn't have to be intimidating. But, but here's what he says. Would you give me a drink? And you need to know she is shocked She is shocked because this is outrageous that he's even talking to her. She says to him, she says, why are you a Jew talking to me? Are you serious? You're going to talk to me? In the original language, it even says this. Jews won't even, they won't even eat out of the same kind of dish that a Samaritan would eat out of. They look down upon them and she is shocked by him, this rabbi, engaging her in conversation. There's some things we need to know. She's coming out to draw draw water at noon by herself because you need to know that she's a social outcast. Not only is she a Samaritan and a woman, which by the way, women were not treated appropriately back in that time. They They were treated terribly. So ladies, again, I want to point out this to you. Jesus treated women. He set the precedent for how women were to be treated, right? And, and, and how they were to be respected and how they were to be loved and cherished. 
And, and this is powerful when we begin to understand this about our Savior. And so she is at going at this point during the day because women would go early in the morning in the cool of the day to get their water and they would go in groups for security reasons. And they would either go early in the morning or they would go late at night. They never went in the middle of the day because it was hot. And so this lady is going at noon because, well, again, she is a social outcast. She has a stigma that is attached to her. There is embarrassment that is in her life. She probably got tired of going to the well and being talked about behind her back or or seeing other women whispering about her. And, And she probably just got sick of that. Or maybe they shamed her where she wouldn't come at that time where the other women would go. This this woman was an outcast and she had a stigma. Now, I keep using this word stigma. What is a stigma? A stigma is this, if you're taking some notes. here's Here's how it defines. It's a mark of disgrace. It's a mark of disgrace that's associated with a particular circumstance or, or a quality that's in that person's life or maybe just a person. But here is what I really want you to hear. Shame is often, I would even say typically, always attached to it. People who bear stigmas usually carry shame around with them. They feel shame in their life because of something that others look at and others judge. She was a Samaritan. There was a stigma there especially whenever a Jew is present. She was a Samaritan woman. Women were not treated properly. She had, a, she had another, there was a lower rung on the ladder there for her, but she also was known in her culture for her immorality. She was sexually immoral, and they deeply looked down upon a woman like that. She was one of those people, right? Right? So she carries around with her, no doubt, a lot of shame. She's embarrassed, I'm sure, because she's been talked about. She knows what others, she has a past, what others have said about her. But she not only has a past, I want you to see, she not only has a a sordid past, she also has a present that is not good. She's stuck in a rut. She can't seem to get out of this rut, and Jesus notices this as he, as he addresses the issue in her life. She keeps trying the same thing over and over and over again, hoping that maybe there'll be a different result, and we know that, we know that that's been called insanity, right? Whenever you try that over and over and over, and you expect a different result, but, and it's not going to happen, and Jesus notices this. You know, there are a lot of people in our culture that feel stigmatized. There are a lot of people who might even be in here today and maybe you took a a risk to come to church today. You didn't know if you would be accepted. Maybe you don't want anybody to know about what's going on in your life because there's something that you're embarrassed about. Maybe you have a past and you you don't ever want anybody to know about your past. There are people who carry stigmas with them all over the place. Yes, even in our churches. It, It could be maybe your stigma is that there's been a broken relationship or relationships. Maybe you've gone through a divorce and you've felt judged by others and they don't know what's happened in your life and, and you've felt stigmatized because of this. Maybe your, your stigma is that you're battling with some kind of addiction. And we are, I am not so naive as to think that there are not addiction issues that are current in, in, this, in this group, in every group that I will preach to today. Just because we're at church does not mean people are not battling There are people who are battling alcoholism that are here today. Some of you are battling with a drug addiction. Some of you are battling with food addiction. Maybe it's sex addiction. Whatever it may be, and there's stigma that is attached to that, and we keep those things in the dark because of the stigma. 
Could be today that your stigma isn't that, but maybe your stigma is that you have struggled with, with some mental health issues and, and you don't want anybody to know about that, that you've battled with depression or you're in a fight with depression right now. Maybe you have severe anxiety or bipolar disorder or there's all kinds of things that, that go in that, in that classification of mental wellness and mental health issues. There are people who battle with stigmas. I've been very candid with our church about a struggle that I've had with depression. And I'll bring that up with you again. Now, I'll tell you, I don't like talking about it. I really don't because it, it, it can depress me <laughs> whenever I talk about it. And, but whenever I, I realize the necessity as I've battled with this throughout my adult life at different times, some of you battle with it more than I do, but there have been some really dark times where I have struggled with, with this. And one of the reasons I never wanted to ever talk about it was because of a stigma that was attached to it. I was afraid that people would, would, would look at me not only as a Christian, but they would look at me as a, as a man. They would look at me as, as I, I like to think of myself as a manly man. I'm not saying I am, but I like to think of myself as that. But, but, but if I talk about this and I, and I get up and I share this, then people are going to maybe look at me and they're going to think that, here's a word, I'm weak. There's not a man that wants to be thought of in that way. I didn't want that stigma or here's another word when we talk about mental health stuff. If I open up about this, then I'm going to have a stigma attached to me. Here's a word. People are going to think I'm crazy. If I actually, if I say something about this, not crazy in a good way, like he's a wild and crazy guy. I'm talking about crazy. Like there's something really wrong with him. He's broken. Hey, I've been in ministry for 28 years now, 28, 29. And you know one thing I've discovered? I'm going to let you all in on something. We're If you don't think you are, ask somebody who loves you. They'll tell you the truth. <laughs> if you don't think you are, come talk to me. I'll, I'll point out some craziness in your life, okay? We're all crazy a little bit. We all are broken. We all have weaknesses. My weakness is different than your weakness. But you have a weakness, right? We all have weaknesses. And, and, and I realized that whenever I actually decided to begin to talk about this, where I had been, and I'm going to call it this, suffering in secrecy. I didn't want anybody to know, but some of you started noticing about 10 years ago when it was at its worst for me. I was going through a dark spot in my life. I didn't even understand it. And some of you who love me started saying, something's up with you. What's going on with you? And I'd be like, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, and they'd be like, you have anger issues, right? What's going on? There was something. I suffered in secrecy with this until, until there was some other men who were pastors that had boldness and began to talk about it. Whenever Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible Church talked about his battle with this, I want you to know, and I listened to him, it set me free. Because I looked up to him and I respect him as a great man of God. He talked about it. Louis Giglio, uh, the, the, the pastor of the great Passion City Church and the Passion Movement. Many of you know about that. He began to talk about it. Pastors were starting to open up about this. I, I read and discovered that Charles Spurgeon, right? He's the, one of the, great, the greatest preacher maybe of all times besides Jesus, called the Prince of Preachers. He talked about it, right? Now, he's a, he's a really old guy. Maybe 
some of you have never heard of that. And then I discovered there were others. So you've got Tommy Nelson, Louis Giglio, other pastors. I could keep going that started actually talking about this. And I started feeling a freedom that was coming. I started discovering there were other leaders like Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, other great leaders, Bart Howell. All the greats have suffered with this, right? I love saying that. It never gets old, okay? At least for me, it doesn't. But I suffered with that until some others got bold and started talking about it. Do you know I had a man after the service today, an elderly man who came up to me, and, and I know this man very well, and he came up to me today in tears, and I've never seen him like that, but he said, I have battled with this my entire life, and I have never told anybody. And he said, thank you for sharing today. I want to get well. And I think his wife was saying, I want him well too. I want him well too. The reason I never wanted to talk about it was because I was afraid of what people might think. There was a stigma that was attached, right? Write this down. Stigmas are hard to remove because they are rooted in fear. When I was running this week and I was thinking more about that point and, and I get a lot of messages while I'm running, God just, I feel like, really speaks to me and it clears my brain Here's another thing that I thought of, and it's not in your notes, but this is something good to write down. Stigmas keep people stuck. Some of you are in a rut. Stigmas keep people stuck because of shame. Because they feel shame that is attached to this. Right? And it takes boldness on someone's part to say, I'm battling. I want to open up. I want to I break the ice here. I, I realize that there are people who are battling with this, not just me. I, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of studying on this, and, and I've recently, I, saw, I came across this video, and, and I was just really blessed to see it. I want to share it with you. So watch this video, and, it, and I'll say something about it afterwards, but watch this. I think I'm now finally to the point where I can look at myself in the mirror and, and like who I see. I can tell you I've probably had at least half a dozen depression spells that I've gone through and the one in 2014 I, I didn't want to be alive. Kind of seeing where I was and then seeing what I have now. I'm so thankful for my family and friends around me who were able to help me and were able to communicate with me and, and I was able to grow through it. The more we talk about it, we can hopefully drop the suicide rate. Suicide rate is way, way, way too high. If we can open up and we can communicate and we can understand it's okay not to be okay. I think we can save a lot of lives. I think there are a lot of kids that deal with anxiety and depression and some of that is because of social media or some of that is because of 
friends and honestly just talking about your feelings, understanding why you're unhappy, depressed, sad, and just recognizing it I think is so big. Just being able to share our own experiences and learn through the process, I think, is something that my mom did so well for us. She was always there to guide us through anything we struggled with. I'll share every experience with my children. Some of them have been absolutely miserable and brutal, but they've made me who I am today. I mean, it's life. We all go through ups and downs. I have a great support system. I'm happy. I remember whenever uh, Michael Phelps was going through a lot of problems, and I remember, I'm confessing this to you, I remember feeling some thoughts of judgment for him. We never know what's going on really behind someone's life, do we? We never know. I want you to understand that, that these kinds of issues, this is not an, uh, if you're artistic, it's not an artistic problem, it's not an athlete problem, it's, it's not a man problem, it's not a woman problem, it's a people problem. There's brokenness in all of our lives. You know, one of the things is I've been studying about this and learning more is, is we're starting to see in the athletic world, we're starting to see more and more athletes who would have never wanted to speak up about anything like this because they would be perceived as weak. Um, many of them are starting to speak up about this. Michael Phelps is kind of leading the charge in this. Kevin Love recently, there was a great article about Kevin Love in Sports Illustrated recently. He played with, Le with LeBron, great, incredible NBA basketball player. Uh, uh, Brandon Marshall, uh, Brandon Marshall, professional football player, struggles with some mental health stuff. He's, he's a part of this movement to bring this up and to talk about this and to begin to get people discussing this. Uh, Jerry West, if, you, if you've been around a while, you know that he's a legendary basketball player, right? And, and one of the greatest of all times, he's talked about this. This is something, what I'm noticing in the athletic world that they're beginning to discuss and I bring that up and I'm, I applaud that and I'm glad about that. But I want to say this too, that I have always felt like the church should be the one that's leading the charge in these areas. Amen, right? Not the world. And I'm glad that the world is recognizing it and beginning to talk about it and, and, and discuss it. But I feel like as a church, that the church that we have to be certain that we are willing to talk about things that maybe others haven't been willing to talk about. Especially when I know this, that one out of five of you this year will battle in some kind of way with some kind of mental wellness issue. When I understand these statistics, that it, half of you, this many of you, sometime in your lifetime, whether it's this group or this group, will battle at some point with this issue. It is very likely you have someone in your family that you love. If it's not you, there's someone in your family who battles with this. And it impacts you and it impacts your kids. Speaking of our kids, our kids are battling with this immensely. They're suffering greatly with this, and, and many of them feel alone, although they are connected by social media like no other generation. I read an article this week that says that millennials and Gen Z, who are right behind them, feel more alone than any other generation. Isn't that interesting? We have to recognize that this is real. And, 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 and so oftentimes, uh, the world will see that the church won't engage with things that are relevant in the culture, and many times their perception then is that the church is irrelevant. We know that that's not true. 
We know that God's word is what we need to dig into and understand more. As a result of this, I shared with you back in, in February and March that we felt led to begin a new ministry here called the Hope Ministry. The Hope Ministry is up and running now and has leaders trained and there are support groups that are already meeting. And I'm thankful it's going, but we want to see it grow. We want to see it grow in our community. And we say, Bart, why are you telling us about this? Because in this expansion that we're talking about, there is a person that is behind every part of this expansion. We're not about a building. We want to be about the people who are behind what we're trying to do. The building is a tool. We want to expand and see to it that our hope ministry has dedicated space so that we're reaching out into our community. It is my vision, our vision as your leadership, as the church here. We want to be known in our community as a place that if you are struggling, a place where you can find help, a place where you can find support, and a place where you can find hope. Right? We want to be known by those who maybe have no religious affiliation. If you're, if, if you're taking some notes, here's something I want you to write down. Our vision is for EVC to be a healing place for people. Amen? I want to say that again. Our vision is for EVC to be a hospital, a healing place for people. Amen, right? That is what we've got to be about. So we want to be very intentional as Jesus was in starting ministries that are meeting people right where they are. We want to see ministries for people maybe that, who are going through divorces and see divorce care. There's a great support group for that. Or maybe we'd love to see divorce care for kids. We'd love to see for people who are battling with grief, support groups for, uh, and a grief share where people can help each other as they're going through that. We want to see a recovery ministry that gets started. It hasn't started yet because we haven't had the right leader rise up to start that yet. And so we want to see that going. We want to see all kinds of groups that are going, that are meeting people right where they are. We want to be known in our community as a place where people can get help. And if we are not, then that is when churches become irrelevant. Have you ever asked yourself why 35% of the people within a four-mile radius of our church would say they want nothing to do with any religious affiliation whatsoever? And instead of judging that, we ought to be broken by that. And we ought to say, how do we press into that? How do, what do we do? How, do? how do we begin to engage that? How do we remove stigmas so people can get help instead of staying stuck in a stigma where that shame is that they don't wanna, they don't wanna come out of that place because they're afraid they're gonna be labeled. The enemy wants to keep people enslaved to shame. Maybe it's you that you're battling with some shame and he would love to keep you in that place of shame. I want to just get back to our text as we kind of wrap this up, but you're going to see that Jesus is, starts by talking to this woman. And again, he's talking to her in a public place. Men didn't talk to women in public places like this. Certainly a rabbi would not do this. It was not proper. But Jesus is going to break these rules because he cares about this woman specifically. He's intentional in talking to her. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and she had immorality that she was known for in her life. So he starts talking masterfully about thirst that drive us. Thirst that we're trying to satisfy. You know, we all want satisfaction in our life. 
and, and the kind of water he's going to say that I can give you. You've been trying to fill your life with something else that's not going to satisfy you. I want to speak into your life some living water. She'd been searching uh, for acceptance, for love, for forgiveness. He's saying, I want to give you something that's going to be all of that, and it's going to last forever. It's going to even spill out of your life into others' lives. He says, if you drink this water from this well, and I don't think he was talking about the well at Sychar. He's talking about the well that she'd been going to over and over again in a cycle. This well of broken relationships where she's trying to fill her life with something, and you're thinking you'll never thirst again. Jesus, in essence, is saying, how's that working out for you? It's not working. And you know it's not working. He gets to the crux of what's going on in her life. He begins to shift gears. This, this statement about her husband just comes out of nowhere, right? It comes out of nowhere. Remember, he's God. He's all-knowing. He knows what's going on in her life. There's a purpose behind it. He's not trying to have a gotcha moment. He's trying to get her to face the problem. He's trying to speak into her life. So he says, why don't you go get your husband? Let's talk. Don't you know at that moment, her heart must have just dropped. Here we go again. I am about to get judged. He's a, not only is he a man, he is, he's a Jewish man, and he is really going to let me have it here. He is going to drop this down on me. And, and so what does she do? She does what a lot of us will do. Now, she does get halfway honest. She says, I don't have a husband. But she wasn't telling the full truth. And Jesus is right, you don't. Now, she tries to shift gears. She starts talking about religious stuff. I don't have time to read it today. Go read it for yourself. She starts talking about where we worship and where the Jews and Jesus is. And she's doing what so many of us are really good at doing whenever there's an issue in our life that we don't want to deal with. We change the subject. We ignore it. And she's not wanting to deal with this and engage with him. Jesus says this, I don't want to talk about religion with you. I want to talk about reality. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about what's really going on with you. Jesus wasn't trying to be mean here. He wasn't trying to like be like, boom, I got you. He was trying to speak to her about a real issue in her life. She had been trying to quench her thirsty soul through her relationships with men. I'm sure there were other things that were going on there, and, and she's in this cycle, this cycle that she can't seem to get out of. She desperately wanted to be loved. She was looking for this in all of these, these exterior places, in all of these relationships, one failing, one right after another. She was never getting herself well, though. She thought someone else could make her well or something else could make her well. And she was so spiritually parched, so thirsty, looking for something to satisfy her, right? And she's in that cycle of shame. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been in it. Maybe you're stuck in that same kind of rut. Maybe it's not relationships, but it's something else for you. And you're in that cycle where maybe we sin or maybe we have a struggle and it's not necessarily sin, but it's a struggle. And then we don't want to get right about it. We don't want to talk about it. We avoid it. We ignore it. We do all these things. Or then maybe we, we do something else to kind of self-medicate because we don't like that about ourselves. Then we, we feel shame. And then because of shame, we end up doing something again. We don't like that about ourselves. We don't like what we see in the mirror. It goes on and 
and on and on and on. How do you know, Pastor Bart? Because I've been there. I know what it's like to be stuck in the cycle of shame. And some of you are stuck in that kind of rut. Today, you're battling with this. She is at her lowest when Jesus says, that's right, you don't have a husband. In fact, the man you're living with right now, he doesn't even value you enough to put a ring on it. I'm trying to be contemporary there, okay? All right. It didn't work. Um, he's not condemning her, but I want you to see something else. He loves her enough to tell her the truth. Did you see he did not water down the truth? He spoke lovingly with some truth into her life like nobody else ever had. Stigma and all. He looked past the stigma. He looked at the person. He saw her for, for a person, not just some reputation. He loved her. I wish I had time to break this story down more, but, but, but I don't. But she begins to say, well, maybe when the Messiah that we all know about, she's still kind of grappling with this, maybe when he shows up, he can kind of set us all straight about this. And Jesus is going to get very direct with her. In fact, it's the first time in the Gospel of John where Jesus says this about himself. He says this about the Messiah. Will you read it with me? I am he. When he said I am, that, that is a big deal to say that in that Jewish culture. That is the same word that when Moses was before the burning bush and Moses said, who should I say sent me? And, and God said, you tell them I am sent you. Jesus is making that declaration, I am God. And he's saying, listen to me, young lady, I am God of this universe, and I came here to meet you. You matter that much to me. That is so powerful. It's so powerful. The disciples show back up. He's talking to her, and there's probably some more conversation that's going on. The disciples are coming up, and they're like going... What is going on? Jesus is talking to this woman and a Samaritan woman. It says this. It says they were shocked. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But I love this because they knew that Jesus was different. But none of them had that nerve to ask him. I imagine Peter was going, Thaddeus, you ask him what's up. John, I ain't asking him. You ask him. Oh, no, I'm you know, they were curious, but nobody wanted to ask because they knew that if they were judgmental, they knew he would call it out. So none of them asked. In fact, they tried to get him to eat something. And he said, if you'll read the passage, he said, my food is, is, the, is the bread of the kingdom of God. So he's talking about this living water. He's talking about this bread that satisfies us, right? The woman left, I love this, she left her water jar beside the well. She left her heavy burden at the well, and she ran back to the village telling how many people. She didn't even want to go to the well when other people are there, and now she's wanting to talk to people about the one she just met, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came, I love this, streaming from the village to see Jesus. She finally comes to the place of believing Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. She goes back to her village with boldness now and begins to tell people, he, this guy's different. You have to come hear about him. He didn't treat me the way that everyone else treats me. 
Here's a point for you to take away from this. One life changed brought transformation for many. When one person has their life changed, there is often a pocket of people around them that will be impacted. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the village, how many? Many of them, the ones that were judging her from the village, believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. Look at Jesus' investment in the people of Samaria. So he stayed for two days. He inconvenienced himself long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because of what we have heard from him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. She had no idea that her life would be changed. She had no idea that God would use her changed life to change the lives of many. And that may be where some of you are today, that you didn't know you were going to have an encounter with God today. But he is here to meet with you. Jesus is here to meet with you today. So what do you take away from this? Let me give you some things and we'll pray. Number one, do we realize we cannot hide our past? We need to stop trying to hide our past. Or if you're going through something right now, maybe you're battling with an addiction right now, we want to remove the stigma. We want you to come. We want you to, be, we want you to get healthy. We want you to be loved. We want you to be accepted. You can't hide this stuff from God. And if you keep hiding it, one, he already knows. If you keep hiding it, you're not going to get well. If you keep hiding some of the things that you're battling with and you keep in denial. So here's the second part. I got to stop living in denial i got to stop ignoring this. By ignoring it, it's not just going to go away. You're going to end right back up in that same cycle. Some of you are stuck in that rut. You're stuck in a cycle. God wants you well. He wants you to be used. He wants to bring healing in your life. He wants to satisfy that soul thirst that you have. But you know what you got to do? You have to get honest. Will you get honest? Will you get real? You need to get honest with God, but you also need to get honest with yourself. What Jesus was doing is he was taking really a mirror and he was putting it in front of her and he's saying, you've been avoiding this, but I want you to look at yourself because I want to do a work in your life. And I know you don't like what you see. You will, you will stay only as sick as your secrets. But if you will open up you can't get healthy till you begin to take that boldness, that one step of getting honest. Stop living in denial. Here's the third and final thing. You ready? This is great. Jesus knows my past. He knows my present condition. Will you say the next part with me? Let's read it. And he still, and he still, he still loves me. Are you thankful for that today? Amen. He still loves us. He still loved this woman. He knew everything about her, but he loved her. He wanted her life changed. He knows everything about you, and he wants your life changed. He removed the stigma. He saw the person. Do you know that every saint has a past? Every saint has a past, and by God's grace, every sinner can have a future. You can have a different future. I want to invite you to pray with me right now. As we just... Thank God for the investment that Jesus made in our lives personally. You may say, I would love to have this thirst, Bart. I do have this thirst in my soul. 
that I've just been trying to fill with so many other things and I am not satisfied. And I'm tired, I'm weary. Do you know Jesus said in John 7, he said, if you are thirsty, come to me. He said, if you believe in me, come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water, living water, will flow from within him. Living water, that's living water that will continuously flow out of your life. If you're thirsty today, Jesus sits right next to you. He puts his arm around you. He accepts you. He looks past your sin. He looks past your shame. He says, I want to be a part of your life. I came for you. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, today he invites you to that. It's not by your religious activity. It wasn't for Nicodemus. He needed to be born again. It's not, you say, I have a past. You heard what he said about that today. You need to be born again. And you can be born again when you place your faith in Jesus. You just call upon him right now. Jesus, will you be my savior? Will you bring living water into my life? Satisfy my soul. Thank you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. I want a future with you. I need a fresh start. Maybe to you, for you today, your response is this, is that you're just going to come clean. Maybe you're even a believer, but you're stuck in a cycle of shame right now. He wants to break you out of that cycle. He wants to give you strength and power. Maybe you just need to come clean with somebody around you and, and find some accountability. Maybe you need to get in one of our hope groups if you're battling with depression and anxiety or any other mental wellness issue. Maybe for you, your response is you believe in this vision and you're going to invest. You're going to invest financially as we go after with love for, for people who are hurting in this community. Maybe for you, your response is as you are freed by whatever it is that has had you in bondage, like that woman, God is going to use you to turn around a whole village. Maybe it's your family. Maybe God wants to use you to turn around your school if you're a student or your place of employment. Maybe he wants to use you to turn around and bring people who are in darkness into light in the city of Saginaw and Fort Worth. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Would you give us courage and boldness, Lord, to, to come out of this place of secrecy? Will you stand with me as we sing in response to our good Lord today?